Philippians chapter 2. Let's talk about being lights. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to be in verse 14 through 18. It's been a couple weeks. We've had a couple different weeks here, but uh, we are back on track in uh, Philippians. And um, we're going to jump back in here. Philippians 2, 14 through 18 says this. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. We could just stop right there, couldn't we? So that, he doesn't leave us there, he gives us some, some help. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I, Paul, will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Let me tell you what this passage is about. I read this story of a bricklayer, a bricklayer who uh, was injured on the job and he had to write up a report for his uh, for his injury compensation and to get his sick leave. Listen to what he wrote here about his, about his accident. It says, When I got to the building, I found that the uh, previous night's storm had knocked some bricks off around the top of the building that we had been working on. So I rigged up a beam with a pulley at the top of the building, and I hoisted up a couple large barrels full of bricks. When I had fixed the damage area at the top, there were a lot of bricks left over. So then I went to the bottom and I began to release the line. Unfortunately now, the barrel of bricks was much heavier than I was. You getting a picture here? And before I knew it, the barrel started coming down and I was going up. Well, I decided to hang on since I was too far off the ground by then to jump, but halfway up I met the, mer- the barrel of bricks coming down fast. I received a hard blow dislocating my shoulder but continued to the top, banging my head against the beam and getting my fingers pinched and jammed in the pulley. Ouch. That's a bad day, isn't it? Doesn't stop there. Listen to this. When the barrel hit the ground hard, it burst its bottom, allowing the bricks to spill out. It was now heavier than the... I was now heavier than the barrel. So I started down again at high speed. Halfway down, I met the barrel again, coming up fast and received... Severe injuries to my legs and shins. When I hit the ground, now, I landed on a pile of spilled bricks, of course, getting several painful cuts and deep bruises. At this point, I must have lost my presence of mind because I let my grip go of the line. Silly me. The barrel came down fast, giving me another blow to the head, knocking me out and putting me in the hospital. I thus request, respectfully, a couple days sick leave. I'd say so. We feel like that sometimes, do we not? Uh, Metaphorically, life in America, uh, for many of us, day in and day out, resembles that. As I am privileged to uh, be a part of many of your lives, I see that uh, this seems to be what happens in, in the lives of not just the lost, but even the believers. I know many of you can uh, identify 
with this story. It, it, it seems to be a testimony of your recent days. This was also true of Paul and it was also true of the Philippians. You remember in chapter 1 all the things Paul had given up. You remember this? Flip over to chapter 1. We're going to bounce around a little bit, but I just want to, I want to remind you of a couple of things. In chapter 1, you remember Paul said he gave up his freedom. Verse 12, he said, my present circumstances and the present circumstances that he refers to in verse 13, he clarifies, i.e. His, his imprisonment, right? So he had given up his freedom. Paul's days weren't worry-free. Not only gave up his freedom, he gave up his reputation. Verse 17, he said, some people proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. He gave up his freedom, his reputation. He even gave up to the very point of his life. Verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and hope, I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now in these bad days be exalted in my body. And what does that mean? How does Paul understand that exaltation? The last phrase there, it could be whether it could be either in my life or in my death for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. He gave up his freedom. He gave up his reputation. He gave up his life. Paul did not have a worry free life. This was true. Paul It was true of the Philippians. It's true of many of you. You remember then when we got to chapter two, he says in chapter two that we're going to have to stick together through this thing in these rough, hard days. We're going to have to stick together if we hope to make it through. And this is going to require, you remember what he said? It's going to require us to have an attitude that is like the attitude of who? Christ's. And he gives us this grand example of Christ's attitude, which was, in a word, humility. He says, if we're going to make it through this together, unified as a body through these good and bad times, we're going to have to have the same attitude that's in Christ. And he gives us a great uh, example, uh, the superlative example of Jesus Christ being humiliated uh, in his humanity all the way to his death and even death on a cross. Christ had a willingness to let go of his rights and his privileges for the sake of others, you remember. And then in verses 9 through 11, Paul says that, uh, uh, I think Paul just couldn't help but uh, elevate Christ back up after he brought him down to earth and to his, to his humiliating death on a cross. I think Paul just couldn't leave Jesus there. And he had to elevate him back. And Preston took us through that uh, a week or so ago, looking at the elevation of Christ giving getting the name that he deserves to be lord but then in verse 12 paul jumps back to our current situation he gets right back on track to our how do we live now current situation while things aren't aren't easy while things are sometimes painful while we're sometimes in jail sometimes we're under the jail when things are going wrong when bricks are falling on us day after day after day it doesn't matter which way we seem to turn how do we how do we continue to live Verse 12, he says, well, we have a role to play in our, in our sanctification life today. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And I won't have time to teach on this as a whole sermon for a whole other day. But he essentially says we have a part to play in our sanctification. As we walk this life in Christ, we have a part to play. We have a working out to do of our salvation in our daily life, in, in the rough daily life is the context. And then in verse 13, not only do we have a role to play, but God has a major role to play. For it is God, verse 13, who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So not only do we have a work to do, but God is at work in us as well. He's working things out in our life. 
And in the context here, the question, the question arises, are we willing to let him do that work? No matter what it brings. You see, the context of him doing this work in Christ meant that he took Christ to a low place. He took Christ through some bad days. You see, the context allowing God to do his work, to do his good pleasure in our lives, well, it, it may be that he works our life the way he worked the life of Paul, the way he worked the life of Epaphroditus, the way he worked the life of Timothy, the way he worked the life, specifically example here, of Jesus. It doesn't all work out rosy. It's not all pain-free. Are, are we willing to accept that? That as we work out our salvation, as God is doing this work in us, we've got to understand that our life might be a cross like Jesus. We don't like that part of the deal, do we? This is why you can build big churches and make big bucks preaching gospel that doesn't include chapter 1, verse 29. Look at it. Chapter 1, verse 29. Paul says this after he tells the Philippians about his current imprisonment. Look at what he says, verse 29 of chapter 1. For you too, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to what? To suffer for his sake. Experiencing this very same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. They knew, they knew the testimony of Paul's hard life. He says, you know what? This is part of our inheritance in Christ. It's part of our inheritance in Christ. But you can build big churches by leaving that facet of the gospel out. A gospel that doesn't include low points. A gospel that doesn't include a humiliating cross. But life... Uh, does have low points. Amen? Yeah, life does have point, low points. Even a life, and maybe uh, perhaps especially a life in Christ, has its low points. You need to know that Paul borrows his language here in verses 14 through 18 from Deuteronomy 32, the Song of Moses. I want you to flip back there for a moment. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 32 is the end of the book. And Moses, who has taken the nation of Israel out of captivity, he's been faithful to God to do his part. He's led an obstinate people, a people who had um, all kinds of trouble trusting the faithfulness of their God, even though God had done so much for them. Listen to what Moses says. It's just at the very beginning of Deuteronomy 32. It's entitled the Song of Moses here. It's in, in a sense his parting words. His summary of his time leading the nation of Israel. Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew. As the droplets on the fresh grass, as the showers on the herb. For I proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are just. And God, he is a God of faithfulness, and he is without, what, injustice. He is righteous, and he is upright. There can be no fault found in any of the ways of God. What a lofty description of Moses' God. Now look at his description of the people he led. Verse 5. They have acted corruptly towards this God, however. They are not his children because of their defect. 
but they are a, you recognize this, a perverse and crooked generation. Now flip back to Philippians chapter 2. The story of the exodus in the wilderness is that Israel grumbles and disputes God the whole way through. They fought with uh, each other. They fought with his leaders. And in doing so, they, uh, they fought with God. Uh, you know, story after story after story in the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings where they, they failed to trust the God who, who extraordinarily took them out of Egypt. Who proved over and over and over how faithful he could be to his promises. And yet still, they debated with him over whether or not he could get them out of the wilderness and into the promised land that he, that he said was a land flowing with milk and honey. He got them out, but could he get them in? And could he take care of them in between? Or were the bad days just going to be bad days and there was no God to depend on? And you know the stories. Over and over, they grumbled. They disputed with each other, the leaders, and therefore God. Israel was called a crooked and perverse generation by Moses because of their constant grumbling and a general lack of faith in the God who had brought them out of Egypt. You remember what happened to the nation of Israel wandering in the wilderness? who didn't trust that the God who had taken them out of Egypt could take them through the wilderness and then take them into the promised land. You know what happened to them? You remember? They got benched. God took a whole generation and he set them to the side. And he says, if you don't, if you don't trust me after all that I've done, um, you're just going to have to sit and watch while I take the next generation in. And they waited outside the promised land until the generation died off. And God gives the next generation a chance. And he says, Will you trust me? And he sends them in. The nation got benched. Paul said this of Israel. Well, he said this in regards to Israel, but instructions to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says, let us not try the Lord as some of them did, referring to Israel, and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did. And were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction. He says to the Corinthians. The psalmist wrote it this way. In Psalm 106. They meaning Israel despised the pleasant land. They did not believe in his word. But they grumbled in their tents. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. They grumbled in their tents. They did not listen to the voice of the Lord. Verse 14 in Philippians chapter 2, Paul gives us just a, a very direct, a very direct command. We cannot be a people who grumble and dispute. The word grumble there, it, uh, it's, it's what we would call an onomatopoeia. It's, it's a word that sounds like what it means. It's the word in Greek, gongusmos. And every time I say it, I kind of sound Russian. I don't know why, but it's hard to get a Hebrew accent. But it means exactly, it, it, it sounds exactly what it means like. It's a guttural word that just sounds like someone's complaining. It just comes from the depths, right? It just comes from deep within. And it's just, it's guttural. Gongusmas. It just sounds like someone who's complaining. The inference here is what comes out of the heart of the person. It's just this. It's just this depth of bitterness and, and a, spirit of, a spirit of grumpiness. Paul says that, that can't be. That can't be of the believer. Not just in our heart, though. He says we can't just grumble in our heart, but we can't dispute. And he moves sort of to a word that talks more not about the heart, but about the head. 
The word for dispute used in the Greek is the word dialogismus. And we get the word dialogue from this. It literally means to, uh, to think through the logic. Okay? And the problem was that, that the nation of Israel in the wilderness, they were, they were thinking too hard through the logical process of what God had to do and could he do it. And they began, because of that, having this dialogue with themselves and therefore then with the leaders and with God. Could God do what he said he was going to do, even though he's already done what he's done? Could he still do this? And it became a a debate. And it became a dispute between them and God. Could God do what he says he can do? And so we have grumbling in the heart and we have disputing with their mind. Paul says, "We, we can't have this. Listen to a few quotes from John MacArthur in regard to the damage this does to the church and how it cannot be involved John MacArthur says this, in reality, every complaint a believer makes, and notice he uses the word every, because Paul uses the word all, do all things. In, in reality, every complaint a believer makes is against the Lord and is one of the ugliest of sins. And complaining against other believers is especially serious, an affront to God, because those believers are his children. James, therefore, warned. Do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Similarly, Peter admonished, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Rather, as each one has received a special gift, employ it serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Believer's failure, John MacArthur says, a believer's failure to willingly, even joyfully submit to God's providential will is a deep-seated and serious sin. Discontentment, and complaining are attitudes that can become so habitual that they are hardly noticed. But those twin sins demonstrate a lack of trust in his providential will, his boundless grace, and his infinite wisdom and love. Consequently, those sins are especially odious in his sight and merit his discipline. One more. Every circumstance of life, every circumstance of life is to be accepted willingly and joyfully. How hard is this? Without murmuring, complaint, or disappointment, much less resentment. There is no exception. There should never be either emotional grumbling or intellectual disputing. It is always sinful for believers to complain about anything the Lord calls them to do or about any circumstance which his sovereignty allows, whether the task is difficult or easy. Whether the task is difficult or or easy, whether the situation involves a blessing or whether the situation involves a trial, negative attitudes are forbidden. That's hard. That's hard. We cannot be those who grumble in our hearts and dispute in our heads with each other, with our leadership, or with God. Let me give you three reasons. Let Paul give us three reasons here. Number one, he's going to say it's not fitting for the children of God. Verse 14 do all things without grumbling or dispute. So that, verse 15, you will prove yourself to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach. Very simply, it's not fitting for the child of God. It doesn't doesn't match their father for the child of God to be a grumbler, a complainer, one who disputes the leadership, one who disputes with other believers, one who disputes with the, the providential will of God. It's not fitting Very simply, it doesn't match. It's incongruous with who we are as his children. Uh, 
As I said earlier, I have the, uh, the honor and the responsibility of being involved in many of your lives. And I, I've sat back in the last couple of weeks, and I've, I've been in awe of uh, many of your lives that I don't hear more of this complaining. Part of the reason that I want, and I'll give you sort of my wrap-up here in the beginning, but part of the reason I wanted to, to look at this section is because I have been, frankly, so impressed with those of you who call Cornerstone home with your resilience in a hard and painful day. And some of you are getting brick after brick dropped on you. And you, you oddly have a peace. You oddly have a resilience in the Lord that is obviously not your own. And I'm just sitting back saying, I don't know how they do it. Lord, I don't know if I could be that way if you put those things that are in their life on me. I wanted to commend you. It's not fitting for the children of God. And as I look at our church, uh, your lives are, in, are, are lining up with whose you are. You match. You match. Uh, let's go on. I don't want to spend too much time on that one. I want to get to the second, second reason we can't be those who grumble and dispute. The number two reason Paul gives us here, verse 15, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach, because we live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Remember that? That was said of Israel. We're not to be like that kind of people. In fact, those are the kind of people, that's the world we live in. And so we're not to look like the world. We're to look differently. We live as children of God above reproach, blameless and innocent, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as, what does it say? Lights in this world. You appear as lights in this world. Very quickly, flip to Genesis chapter 1. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. I want you to see why God gave us the lights. You see, that word in Ephesians is not just the word for light. It's literally the word for the heavenly stars. You could translate it the luminaries. It's the proper word for a star. Okay? So Paul says, we have the responsibility as we live in a crooked and perverse world, where things are bad, where we live in a world where bricks are dropping on our head day after day, we have the responsibility not to be grumblers or disputers to live at that level, but we have a responsibility to raise our level, and we have to live as stars. Now check out what stars are for. Why did God give us stars? Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 14. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and to let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and so it was god made the two great lights the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night he made the stars also god placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness and god saw that it was good god gave us light one for direction for direction you see that stars are for signs that we that we find our heading and our bearing okay by the stars we navigate our life by stars right very literally the stars he says he gave us for timing and seasons and also for illumination to separate the dark from the light he gives us light for clarity now does that match our responsibility as those, as we sang earlier, who reflect the light that is Jesus Christ in a dark and dying world, amidst the pain, amidst the crookedness, amidst 
the grumbling and disputing? Are we to be are we to be the kind of stars that give our world direction that they can navigate towards truth by? Sure. Are we to be uh, the kind of stars who mark times and seasons that, that the world understands uh, the grand scheme of God's eternal plan by, by looking at our lives? Sure. Like the men of Issachar who understood the times. We're to be, we're to be stars to give direction, to give, to give markings of the times that we're in. And also we're to be stars that illuminate, that give clarity, that separate the light from the darkness. Preston quoted Ephesians 5 earlier, we walk as children of the light. Psalm 136 says, it was the loving kindness of God that made the lights. It's because he's loving that he gave us that, that direction, that clarity, that illumination. That's what we're to be. Proverbs 4 says, but the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. Matthew 5, you know it well, 13 through 16, we're to be salt and what? Light. So let our light shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify their Father who is in heaven. We're, we're markers for this world. You catch that? Philippians 2. We are to be lights. We're to be stars in this crooked and perverse generation that, that men in darkness might see and find direction, navigation towards truth, clarity, illumination. And they might understand the times. John 8, 12, and there's many, many more, but John 8, 12, you remember that says that the light we have is the light that is in us. It's Christ in us. He's our light. How badly, let me ask you, how badly does the world need hurting Christians to be lights in the darkness? How bad? Again, I look at your lives and I, I, I rejoice in watching some of you live while the bricks fall because I see this passage coming to life. That God is using you in your pain as you hurt, as the world hurts, he's using you not to be down here grumbling and complaining, disputing God on what's going on in your poor world, in your poor little life, but you've, you've risen above it, many of you, and you've become luminaries that the world can look for direction, illumination, clarity, and understand what God is doing and what he has done. That's us. We're, we're those lights. We need to be those lights. There can't be any grumbling. There can't be any disputing in us. Look at what he says here. What are we supposed to do with the light? Verse 16. We are to hold fast this light. And he specifically calls it the word of life. Literally, it says holding forth. It's not that Christians have to hold, full, hold fast to the truth. That is the word of life, which specifically is the gospel message. It's not that we have to hold fast to that. That is true, but it's not true here. It's, it's literally that we, we hold it forth, like the Statue of Liberty. We hold forth the light of liberty. Paul says that we're to be lights. We're to be, we're to be those beacons. We're to be those lighthouses set on a hill so that all the world can, can see out of the darkness, get direction towards God, illumination towards truth. We're to hold forth that light. That's what our life is to do. Not in grumbling and disputing because that doesn't hold forth the light. 
But as we, as we submit, even in, even in the bad times, to the lot God has placed us in this season of life, and like Paul, even in sorrow we rejoice, as we do that, Paul says here that we hold forth. We hold forth, look what it says, the word of life. Did you catch that? The word of life. We have life for this world. As they go through this pain, as they go through the darkness, as bricks are dropping on their head, and they see bricks dropping on your head, they should see your life as a, as a marker, as a sign pointing towards your God that gets you through. Yeah. It's not fitting for the children of God to grumble and dispute. It's not, it's not beneficial to the lost. See that? It's not beneficial to the lost. It doesn't match who we are, and it doesn't help our cause in declaring the glory of God. Our troubles, check this out, our troubles set you up on a platform to display, to reflect the light, the glory of God. They give you opportunity. So when the deck falls off the back of your house and your pump goes bad, whatever it has, you know, that's happening in your life, when family members are ill, uh, when your hours get cut in half, when jobs go away, when cars break down, no matter what happens, when life piles on, okay, when life piles on, we have, we have this anchor, we have this foundation, this resilience that is unexplainable to the world, but it's a bright light to them, and it guides them to truth. Well, not only that, and I won't spend much time on this, not only is it not fitting for the children of God to grumble and dispute, not only is it not beneficial to the lost, but it's not what the leaders have given their lives to. Look at how Paul ends up. He ends up with a personal word here in this, in this section. Verse 17, But even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. End of verse 16, when I watch you, I realize that I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. The heart of every shepherd, the heart of every pastor, elder, leader of a church, when he looks at his people, is to see, is to see that the work that they are doing to lead the flock into holiness, into sanctification, it's not in vain. It's not, it's, it's not for naught. And that brings, frankly, it brings us great joy. It makes the difficult days in ministry all worth it. Uh, and again, I, I mean this message to be an encouragement to you. Uh, I had two conversations with elders just this week, and they were just, they were just amazed at the health of our, of our body in the midst of everything you're going through. Things are falling apart in some of your lives, and yet you're clinging to the Lord, and spiritually speaking, you're better than you ever have been. And isn't, isn't that just how God works sometimes, right? I mean, should we be surprised that he takes us through the difficult times like this because it's these difficult times that strengthen us? There's a couple passages about that. Yeah. I, I think it's because you get a steady diet of Scripture through, through this church. Uh, that is, that's, just the, um, that's just the truth of it. Third John 4 says this. 
I find it to be true. John says, I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. In Hebrews 13, the author says this, encouragement to the body. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. Did you know that? You know we've been tasked with the, with the responsibility as leadership over a flock to keep watch over your souls. That's a weighty task. We keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. That's even, that's even more. <laughs> that's even more weighty. That one day the leaders in the church will stand before God giving an account for the way they led the flock. So obey your leaders, submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not grief, for this would be unprofitable to you. God is not consumed with your temporary... Listen closely here, because I'm going to choose my words carefully. God's not consumed with your temporary comfort, health, happiness alone, or even primarily. Okay, And those of you who have bricks falling on your head... You know this cannot be the case. That God is not solely or primarily concerned with your comfort alone, your health alone, your happiness alone. His eternal plans are bigger than that. His eternal plans are bigger than that. Does he have your comfort, happiness, peace, etc. in mind? He certainly does. He certainly does, but in a far greater way than you may understand. In a far greater way than many who understand. Those of you who have caught a glimpse of a big God and his big plans know that right now may not be easy. And like Paul, you understand a few things. See if you recognize these. You understand, (coughs) excuse me, that the current circumstances may be turning out for the greater progress of the gospel, even if they're bad. You understand that to live is Christ and to die, well, that would... Some days be gain. And the longer you live and the more you know about Christ, even on the good days, to die would be gain. That it has been gifted to us for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And if we have to lose everything we've gained in life, so be it. Because everything we've gained ourselves, we consider loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. These ringing a bell? This is Philippians chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. So we forget what is behind and we press towards the goal because our citizenship isn't here. Where is it? It's in heaven, chapter 3. While we wait, we ought to not be anxious for what? Anything. But instead we do what? We pray and we give thanks. And then what? And the God of peace, we find out, is with us. And so whether we have a lot or a little, like Paul, we learn the secret of being content. What was it? That we can do all things through him. Amen? Even when the bricks just keep falling and keep falling. All right, so here, here's, the, here's the main emphasis. Uh, I, I solely this morning wanted to point out the fact that we are those guiding lights in a dark world. And I felt like I had to un- explain all of that so that you understand the context of where he says this. That we don't live at the level of grumbling and complaining. While God is up to things that are, that are bigger than we can understand. While the world is going awry. While your lives may not be on the track that you would have laid out for them. Okay? 
We rest in his sovereignty. We trust in his providential will. We know that he has our best interests in mind. Maybe not our right now best interests, but our eternal best interests. And as we live, here's what, here's, what I want, here's what I want to encourage you with. Here's where I want to challenge you. And here's where I want to commend you because you are doing well, Cornerstone. You, you, you set yourself as luminaries in the sky for all the world who lives down here to see. Not you, but the light that is in you, the light you reflect. The Jesus, the bread and the wine that we, we hold up. And because our life, even when we go through pain, matches what we say about our God, his faithfulness to us, and our trust in him, what we know about his big picture, the world, the world sees that light, and it knows that that light leads to truth. Keep that up. Let's pray.